On October 16, 2017, more than 100 progressive investors joined forces with the International Club of Rome and the Aquil Group to launch the investment turnaround, the investment vendor. We believe that we can all look into a bright and exciting future because we can reinvent ourselves and make our financial, business and economic systems integrally sustainable. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world leaders and role models who are already on this path and who can guide us with their advice and wisdom. Today, Dr. Bosazan interviews Sean Kidney. Sean Kidney serves as a member of the European Commission's high-level expert group on sustainable finance and the UK Green Finance Task Force. In addition, he's been consultant on green bonds to the United Nations Secretary General and many more. Welcome, Sean. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Mariana, for having me. How did you become such a force for good? Oh, you do ask the hard questions first. If, if you'll give me a liberty, I'm afraid I have to give you two answers to that. The first answer is early in my life, and the second answer is late in my life, which has led me on this journey. Uh, when I was very young, I, I um, had a business, which was a publishing design business, producing magazines and advertisements for them and so on. I can remember at one point, you know, it was not, never fantastic doing a business, but we produced some great magazines. But at one point, I was asked to do an, a, an advertisement for a used car sales company. And I can remember going to meet the owner of the company before I could do a full page color advertisement uh, as part of our various duties. And we had a team of people, but this one fell to me. And I can remember leaving the meeting and thinking, I can honestly find no redeeming features <laughs> with this particular guy. <laughs> no redeeming features. I had a crisis of confidence. I simply didn't know what to do. Now, I was young. And if I'd been a seasoned advertising executive, I'm sure I would have found a way to, through it. But in some ways, luckily, I was young. And that led me to question what in the world I was doing of my life, young and idealistic as I was creating advertisements for someone who was not a particularly attractive character, was selling pretty crappy cars, um, but was successfully selling them. And I'm thinking, this can't be the meaning of life. Six months later, we'd closed the business, and I was traveling overseas, exploring community development, publishing, and communications work. And that led me on a very different journey in my life, which involved a series of startups for others and then for myself around the issue of social enterprise, communications, marketing for causes and so on. Then I get to about 49. I've been working in Australia all my life. I'd had a, the privilege of working on issues, causes, had 100 staff at one point. Uh, I was a board member of Greenpeace Australia. But a couple of things happened. One of my businesses, a publishing business, went um, into administration. That was a, a major crisis of confidence. Made me very depressed for quite some time. Took me years to pay off all the debts. At the, soon afterwards, my father died, or rather he died slowly. I got a call one night saying he's going to hospital in New Zealand where he was living at the time. You need to come over. He's probably not going to last a weekend. I grabbed everything on my table because I didn't know whether I'd be there one day or a week. Got on a plane and hopped over. In the end, he lasted a month, and I slept in the room next to his, uh, ho his hospital bed, spoke to him and for the, during the, days, the hours he was awake, which is about six or eight hours a day, and the rest of the time, I read the stuff that I picked up off my desk, one of which was the proceedings of the catastrophic climate change conference at Oxford, chaired by Tony Blair. And I got to the end of the book, and I was chilled. Because even though I'd been working with 
environmental groups and government agencies as well for years, and I knew, I thought, a reasonable amount about climate change, I had no idea how catastrophic the projections were, the current projections were. And I came away thinking, my God, this is species-threatening. That rather galvanised me. Three weeks later, I'd come back, three weeks after my father died, I went on a recovery walk in the mountains with some friends. I came back to Sydney and I promptly had a stroke. Went into hospital, had spent a week there, came back, luckily with no lasting impacts that I'm aware of. But it really, again, focused my mind on what I'm doing with my life. And it led me to a view. Some people, I guess, decide to buy Maseratis. Some people decide to go travelling around the world. In my case, I arrived at a view that I needed to work on the issues that matter for, my, for the world and for my children. I've got four children. And that led me to saying I'm going to spend the rest of my life working on addressing climate change. When you start looking at climate change and you realise the sclerosis of politics and so on, and my professional expertise in those years working on social issues was essentially around social change, achieving social change, tobacco health campaigns, all those sort of quit-smoking campaigns, I mean, community health, environmental campaigns and so on. I realised that we needed to bring new forces to bear. I'd had, again, the privilege of working with pension funds in Australia who were trying to change the way savings programs worked, life insurance worked and so on. And I'd seen some fantastic shifts in new thinking around pension funds by the industry-led pension funds. Let's say the equivalent of... um, APG and uh, PGGM in the Netherlands. For example, one of the funds I worked for, one of the campaigns I worked for, was the promotion of new life insurance products for members of one very large fund, where the fund had managed to broker life insurance for its membership, which was not only half the cost of commercially available life insurance, bulk purchasing essentially, but also ensure that people of all with all forms of illness and potential risk were included. And that at that time, controversially, including people with HIV-AIDS, who would now be covered by life insurance, which is quite extraordinary at the time, and progressive. This was the early 90s. And I realised, whoa, we have some sources of capital, some sources of power, potentially, that could change the face of society. So the strategy, from my perspective, was to think about how we could harness those new forces of capital that were interested in long, the long term, that had a, an inherent DNA requirement to look at the long term to help the world address long-term problems that were frankly not being addressed at this particular phase in our history, and that is climate change, environmental calamity, and all the things that go with the destruction of biodiversity and so on, which is not so much climate change, but exacerbated by climate change. And um, over time, I spent about uh, two years researching a strategy. We came up with a paper which led us to the fixed income market as the way into this particular pension fund market because pension funds are somewhere between 50 and 70% exposed to fixed income. And, of course, insurance funds, the other big lump of institutional investor capital, are up to 90% invested in fixed income. We realised there was a route through the fixed income market and without going into the detail, that's how we got to where we are today with a a global green bonds, that's labelled green bonds market, uh, issued last year $155 billion and likely to, to grow this year by about 80%. So that's the, that's the two-punch story, that there is no other way but to do what I'm doing now, no other way to, but to serve. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. So what can really be done? How can people join your uh, Climate Bonds initiative? The creation of a 
fixed income market is a platform for further action rather than the end in its own right. In the sense that, you know, there are a couple, we had, you know, if I, if I go back to when we started this program, which is uh, uh, nine or eight or nine years ago, there were a couple of things missing from the equation as far as I was concerned. One is there was an incredible lack of appreciation of the potential positive impact of a, let's call it a switch to green as a shorthand. While we face a fork in the road, you know, the, the path we're currently on, the main highway we're barreling down at very high speed, is, well, frankly, a, a road to, at current um, risk uh, appreciation, utter catastrophe, you know, collapse of civilization, the collapse of uh, the species as we know it, as a human species as we know it, let alone the destruction of, uh, of other species at a even faster rate than we're currently experiencing, which is one of the biggest uh, uh, species destructions uh, since uh, the collapse of the dinosaurs, I think is what we're currently looking at. It is, you know, the, the current path is very grim. If we take the other path, the other path which actually involves massive investment in transition, a lot of which is infrastructure, a lot of which is things like railways and clean energy and urban development, which is low carbon and unfortunately now because we've already affected the climate so much, climate resilient, that's actually a huge investment pipeline. We have to spend something between 60 and $90 trillion between now and 2050 in shifting to green and building up our emerging markets as well, partly because we need them to be wealthy so they can withstand the kind of climate, wealthier, so they can stand the kind of climate shocks they're going to have year in, year out. They've got a much more resilient societies than they are now. If you think about that, that is the biggest investment boom in history. So if we make this transition, we've been thinking about as a cost, and this is one of the, the tragedies, I guess, of the tactic we pursued in the 90s, which is car around carbon trading and carbon cost, is that we got stuck in a cost mentality. Actually, this is an incredible investment opportunity mentality, and we felt we needed to actually make that point. Essentially, we have some public sector priorities. If we invest in these public sector priorities, we're going to have a stimulation. In a way, if I can use a rather awful parallel, is that during wars, economies that are not being actually destroyed, where they where the tanks are rolling over, actually boom, as the US did during World War II, because of the level of mobilisation of capital, infrastructure and people involved in transitions. So there's a need to start thinking of this is not either it's gloom that way and it's also gloom that way if we spend all this money. Actually, if we spend all this money in transition, we create jobs, we create futures, we create a better world. We create some short-term benefits too. I was giving a speech in Delhi last week and saying, look, whether you think this climate change thing is happening or not, if you take this green path, you're going to have cleaner air and you're going to live longer because Delhi is the most polluted big city in the world at the moment. You're going to have better cities to live in that you can walk in, stronger communities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are many other collateral benefits that are associated with it, health being one of the biggest ones. So that need to change the terms of thinking about how we make the transition was one of the things that led us into this. The other one was to push home the idea that this isn't about R&D. This isn't about all future development. And this isn't about governments having to act with taxpayers' dollars. Because, again, when you look at the nature of solutions required, most of them are investable. 
There are some things that are very hard to become investable. The stopping of tropical rainforest destruction, for example. There are things that governments have to act on their own. We act, governments have to act on their own. But in most of the areas, we can construct this as investment. And, you know, let me take a railway line, which is monopoly infrastructure as a rule. But nevertheless, we've developed means where we can raise the money from private capital, as we have at many times of railway booms in our histories. Railway is low-carbon transport, by the way, dramatically low-carbon compared to road. And we know how to make it profitable enough so that at least we can ensure reasonable returns for investors whilst making sure the railway pays its own costs as we go along. And isn't, you know, this isn't about speculative high-gain profits for most people. It's reasonable returns. And that is a perfect pact between pension and insurance funds and the public sector. So a big part of what we try to do with the fixed income discussion that we're engendering globally is around promoting that idea that the bulk of what we have to do is going to be large-scale infrastructure perfectly suited to pension funds and insurance investors that are looking to protect their capital as distinct from make from large profits. We need to engineer those. So that's the mainstream market. Now, on the edge of that comes all the smaller stuff that leads to the larger markets. As you develop a very large market for green investments, and this will be a trillion-dollar-year market in 2020, just the labelled green bond market in our view, and it'll be a, a couple of trillion a year, including all the unlabeled. And we can go into the difference between, but let's say investments in the in the transition. Then investors who have appetite for risk and who have understanding of how this works will be able to dive into the 5% of investments that, are, that will be risky to get things going to make sure that they are, let's call it the beachhead or the, the, way, the surf wave at the beginning of the large, the front of the large pools of private capital. And that, that's how you create investment. So you don't start off trying to create a market for the high risk stuff. You start off trying to create a market for the low-risk, high-volume stuff, and on the back of that, you start bringing in the risky investments. So that's the way we've been thinking about it. The two key points I want to say is we have to keep pushing the idea that this transition will be a positive transition. It's not a burden. That doesn't mean it isn't tough, especially as left it so late. It is hard and challenging. But it will create so much good in so many ways. And that's part of what we're trying to do. We need, we need optimism and opportunity about this. Yes, absolutely. Intelligent optimism is important. That's exactly what we want to bring about with, with this particular podcast. It's a positive transition. There is plenty of capital to move in the right direction. And, and isn't that fantastic? You know, it's quite funny when you think about it. Well, maybe funny is not quite the right word. But we have this species-defying threat, which is, you know likely to see the loss, according to the climate scientists I speak with at the moment, of about half the world's population by the end of the century because of epidemics and so on. And we know the solutions is essentially a high capex path, vast volumes of capital unprecedented in human history. And at the same time, we have this glut of capital. We have a world awash in capital and large slabs of it are in zero and negative interest rate instruments. I mean, in a way, how lucky are we that as a crisis hits us, we have this large pool of resource waiting to be deployed, desperate for, for yield. Yes. That, is, that is the opportunity. That's what keeps me optimistic. So the next question is, how can money owners get involved? 
not pension funds, but we as individual family offices, you know, we, we don't have the restrictions that pension funds do. I mean, we have to generate this future. We have to create this future. We have to create an imagination about what is possible. Part of that is proving that investments of purpose work. Part of it is taking bets that a future will unfold in a correct direction and looking for ways of proving the point that are beachheads. There's a bit of risk capital involved in that because we won't necessarily get people moving of low interest capital at first all the time. That's one. Two is in markets where large slabs of capital are not available because the large projects aren't necessarily available. And that ranges from smaller emerging markets to maybe distributed solar in Germany. There is a need for people to explore those areas and make sure that they move forward and grow fast. Once they grow as large sectors, institutional capital can move into them. But there's a bridge. We've got to actually grow them, you know, from the green shoots they are into healthy, vibrant plants before those large capital owners can participate. And that requires a little bit of risk and it requires foresighted, future-sighted investors participating in that. I mean, the returns are much higher in those areas because of the risks involved. But what I'm saying is if you think strategically about how the world has to change and you look at areas where that change isn't happening, you can put your capital to work to help bring about that change whilst also getting a good return as those small sectors grow fast. And I think that's actually strategically what I would say the most important thing that investors of a smaller scale can do. You know, and I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Um, there's a famous solar company in Kenya called MCOPA. Uh, it's actually set up by, uh, by a former U.S. Bank of America guy who told me that he, he looked at his son growing up when he was about four and he started thinking... I've got to be able to look this kid in the eye when I grow up and say that I help make a better life for him, given everything seems so grim at the moment. So in his case, he chose to move to Africa, take his family to Kenya and set up a solar company. His particular skill was the ability to be able to sell to investors ideas that they might not otherwise consider. This is not something that was particularly available in Kenya in terms of the reach to international investors. So that's what he brought to the picture. And so he had a vision of a company. Now, they've set up this company which resells small-scale solar to villages and farmers across Kenya with a unique twist. The payments, the lease payments, go through the mobile phone. You might be aware that Kenya is full of um, uh, financial products available through the mobile phone network, M-Pesa yes. it's called. Mm -hmm. And so, that, so you buy a solar lamp for your house and you're able to make micropayments through your telephone account to pay it back over time. The payback is very fast for a family, but it's a healthy interest rate, but it's not a usurious microfinance interest rate. So far, so good. Now, they needed capital. So he's been able to, through his networks at Bank of America, develop a network of private investors in Germany and in Switzerland who've continued to buy the notes that MCOPA have issued to finance their growth. Now, that's been incredibly important. Those investors have helped grow a business that is not only getting small solar to thousands of villages and individuals around Kenya, but is also a business which is proving to be uh, transformative in its model and inspiring others around East Africa and other countries to do the same. That's what I'd call 
a really excellent example of strategically important investing by private investors. There's a lot of those. There's a lot of those examples around the world. Yes. Now, of course, we've got to get get those in front of people. I appreciate that. And it requires a bit of hunting. But the returns are immense. You're also certifying investors. Why is that certification necessary? What is the benefit? Well, it's not necessary in the sense that if an investor has the time and scope, the due diligence on the environmental benefits of a product, they can make their own call on it. But many investors have difficulty making an assessment, particularly once you get beyond, when it comes to climate change, beyond solar and wind. Is this bioenergy actually a good quality uh, environmental benefit from the uh, in, uh, climate change perspective? Um, just geothermal event. Let, let me give you an example around geothermal. When I first start in this market, there were a couple of bonds issued by development banks that had a line item of proceeds going to geothermal. When we we decided that certification would be useful in an institutional bond market because commoditization is, a, you know, it's basically a feature of all large bond markets. Until you commoditize, growth doesn't happen. It makes it easier for all sorts of investors to dive in. They, in other words, check the system rather than individual investors, and that makes, it, you know, quick decisions and so on. That was the original thesis behind it. As we looked at geothermal as one of the case studies we looked at, we realized that there were really complications when it came to environmental assessments. And this has been repeated in every sector we've looked at. Some geothermal, which is drilled down through calcium, most Turkish geothermal, for example, when you put hot water into the rock, you get a whole lot of gaseous outputs. The output of a geothermal plant in some parts of Turkey can be as high as a coal-fired power plant when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. That geothermal is not very good for the planet. Now, the majority of geothermal is, in fact, very low carbon and very useful relative to other options. But knowing what is and isn't starts becoming really important. So the certification effectively confirms its adherence to, let's say, Paris Agreement trajectories. The certification scheme brings together global experts who examine a particular area figure out what the rules set in a particular area, such as hydro, again, very controversial, or waste to energy or so on, and then standardizes that rule set so that a whole bunch of organizations around the world, including the big four audit firms, can then do assessments on the ground around the environmental credibility. So when you're an investor and you see a certified bond, you know it's been through a fairly rigorous process and you can say, oh, okay, I can have a close look, but if I've got to make a quick decision, I've got a reasonable amount of confidence but at least the environmental credentials have been appropriately checked. And that's essentially the benefit of certification. It doesn't obviate the potential for much deeper engagement understanding on the part of the investor, but it can aid quick decisions and it can let you get on with the credit issues, which is the other side, which we don't look at. People still have to make a you know, a credit or returns issue around it, which is, of course, the area where most people in investment have their primary competencies. So that's the background. Uh, at the moment... Certification influences the market, or rather the certification scheme influences the market in two ways. Three ways, I guess. The first way is about 20% of bonds globally in the labelled green bond market are certified, and that's growing at a much faster rate than the actual bond market, the green bond market. Most bonds coming out of India, for example, are certified. That's actually been really important for India because European investors have been deeply sceptical about the environmental claims coming out of India. You know, with some reason in the background. So 
the benefit of an international scheme, in this case a European-based scheme, which provides a framework to more closely examine the environmental claims and the ongoing reporting, has fairly significantly improved confidence in the environmental credibility of those investments and has allowed fairly rapid growth of a market of Indian companies coming to Europe issuing green bonds. That's one out, one way it influences the market. The second way is by doing the science work around what are qualifying investments, we've been able to educate the market about some things that, that, that really may not, you know, I suppose for hindsight, but now you think should be obvious. A good example is I remember five or six years ago as we started in that process, having a presentation in London to investors around green bonds. And I talked about railways. And one investor came up to me afterwards and said, but what's so green about railways? Aren't they really dirty? And it allowed us to really explain to people the extent to which transport, low-carbon transport is important. 23% of all energy emissions are transport emissions. Shifting to electric cars is great but slow, but nowhere near as emissions efficient as shifting to mass transit, particularly rail. Even when you take into account emissions coming in from the coal system in those countries that have high coal-fired power. And there's a longer story I can go into, but that's an example. We're taking that same science framework to educate investors about what are priority sectors now to uh, the true story around hydro, how you address the methane risks and the adaptation risks and so on, what is good energy, waste-to-energy project, what is a bad waste-to-energy project in the context of climate change and emissions, how broadband and other IT investments need to be looked at in the context of climate change. Some of those investments are actually critically important to achieving our transitions and need to be bought into this particular market, and so on and so on. Now, the third area of influence has been that that framework developed has now begun to influence governments as they start to consider incentives for these green finance instruments. Notably, China and more recently the European Commission have announced incentives. And in that case, we now have a ready-made governance scheme, if you like, which has explored these issues properly, which they're able to essentially co-opt into their programs, which is, of course, always the intent. You know, let me be clear, we don't make the rapid transition to a low-carbon and climate-resilient economy at the kind of speeds we have to achieve without activist governments. And those activist governments will have to have a look at a range of incentives and also get their act together of planning green investments. And this is really our target, if you like. So the certification scheme has always been focused on, in the end, influencing governments. A long-winded answer, Mariana. My apologies. So that's very important. What are the best ways to put this message forward to get governments involved? Well, I guess there's three things I'd say here. The first thing is um, there are some funds and ETFs becoming available which provide some access to high note of individuals. Keep an eye out for them. I mean, in Paris, for example, Lixor has launched a, climate bond, a green bonds ETF based on the climate bonds universe of funds. Uh, and then uh, in that case, Selective have done an index around that. So that's the beginning. Uh, the second part is now that we've built a larger market, uh, an institutional investment-focused market, we are now beginning as an organisation, and not just us, but many other people working in this area, to start to look at how we get the risk, start to build up a scale of projects that have just been too small, too marginal, to get on the radar so far. Let's take, let's call it taking the MCOPA example and amplifying it. 
Um, so that's beginning this year. We hope to be running some investor forums in in key cities around the world aimed at high-nerve individuals. We're looking for people to help stage those where we simply bring people from emerging markets and their stories to meet as a way of educating. That's one thing. And we'll be looking at doing a, uh, some work on investor platforms to try and connect people in the sort of way that some of the the, uh, the Kiva and other platforms connect people. Our focus remains debt, but, of course, many of these people also need equity as well. That's the second area. Uh, there are other people... I hope working in this area, we haven't actually made all the, all the connections that we need to make in this area because our focus has been institutional this year when our when our looking at this. I guess the other thing too is um, ask. So there are many, picking up what I'm saying about other people, there are many actors that should be more aggressive in this area and that could be more aggressive in this area in terms of creating opportunities available. I mean, classically, the the private bankers of the world, you know, UBS has Credit Suisse, the Swiss banks, and so on. All these organisations have reach and the potential to make bridges. Push them. If you've got a, someone you're working with, fund managers, say, look, uh, put out of a reverse inquiry. Say that we know that there are these developments in emerging markets around climate change, solar energy, wind energy, but not just those areas. You know, the big areas of investments are around resilient agriculture and sustainable agriculture. There are microfinance companies working in India who are doing amazing work around bringing capital to people. Let me give you an example. In, in Andhra Pradesh in India, there's been a project led by the chief minister, in fact, which is now beginning to scale up, which is shifting farmers from pesticide and fertilizer-dependent agriculture to what they call natural agriculture. Now, what they mean by that is replacing high greenhouse gas fertilizer with organic fertilizer, uh, you know, from cows and so on, and teaching people how to do this, but teaching them the context of practice that will increase productivity, not just returning to the past, but returning to learning lessons from permaculture, if you're familiar with that particular yes. approach. Also switching away from pesticides as much as possible into, again, some of the lessons from permaculture, companion planting, and so on. Now, this isn't just a small project. They've been going since 2004. 200,000 farmers have made this switch. There's actually longitudinal evidence of significant increases in productivity and a reduction in costs for farmers, which improves their margins, of course. These are small farmers, largely. These areas, they now have a plan to rapidly scale this up over the next couple of years to essentially include all the farmers that are willing to participate in Andhra Pradesh State in a government initiative. So they're going to, they've set up a thing called the Sustainable Investment Fund Facility, something like that, I can't remember the name now, and they're looking at the idea of issuing bonds in the second half of this year. Some of those bonds will become available or should become available to high-nerve individuals. That's one of the things we're trying to engineer with them. Now, these things are around. The bankers can do more to hunt them down and to cultivate them and to bring them to market, to make it easier for people to invest in them. They require a bit of a longer view on the part of the deal makers. So bankers that have a three-month to six-month horizon aren't going to make these things work. And a lot of bankers, of course, their whole remuneration schemes are relatively short-term. They take... They do take a year or two years to actually bring to market successfully because there's all sorts of speed bumps in the way of a first issue in a first area like that. We need people who are willing to 
patiently invest in bringing these things to market. Now, if you're an investor, tell your banker that's what you want. Get them to hunt. But they often don't know about it. Many have never heard of ESG or COP21. Let's face it. At the end of the day, this is a, uh, a sector that's driven by the client. So, um, so you know, know, push hard. Yeah. But in the meantime, we'll be doing some things this year uh, as an NGO in the space to try and cultivate interest and grow interest, particularly in three markets that we're starting off with, which is India, East Africa, and some parts of Latin America. Just, to, just to, again, to try and prove the point and, and try and get something moving. What do you personally do to be able to handle all of these different markets, Africa, India, China, the West? How do you make that integration? Well, unusually, I'm actually from a small island state. I was born in Vanuatu. Oh, oh parents were Australian. really? And spent my formative years there. Uh, and, it, it, you know, whilst I haven't lived there since I was, very, since I was eight years old, uh, when I go back, it smells like home. It still smells like home. It is so beautiful. God, it is. And, um, and uh, that gives me a slightly different perspective, to a certain degree, on the need for development, the need for equitable development, and the need to protect vulnerable ecosystems. Uh, so uh, I place myself in that category as much as I place myself in a, in a developed world category. Um, in Australia, it is also a place that's one of the most threatened in terms of its ecosystems by climate change, that we're for the Great Barrier Reef or the or coastal landscapes and so on. Um, I, I, of course, coming from a uh, that sort of perspective, you've always got an interest in the broader world. And, uh, you know, we're one species, aren't we? We're one planet. And that level of consciousness is something that um, helps keep things together for me. I, I'm going to say, I'm going to... I'm just first going to go slightly metaphysical before I come back. You know, I do see this, and I know this because this is part of the discussions at Club at Rome, I think, in the, yes. over the years anyway, which is that, you know, this is a – I see this as a kind of um, transition, p potential transition of humanity from an unconscious juvenile state into an adult state. What we've discovered is well, – let me put it this way. When I was young, I can remember as a kid – wandering through forests and just kicking things and going crazy and being a wild and crazy adolescent with no real concern for what I was doing as a young man full of testosterone and full of energy and so on. As I grew older, I began to realize, oh, my God, did I really do that and got quite embarrassed. You know, we all have memories of our adolescence and our young adulthood where we did things which we wouldn't do any more and we're embarrassed about it. You know, a friend of mine once said that more than 50% of all people commit a crime in their teenage years or their or their early early adulthood. And if we were to jail everyone for committing a crime in that period, then the whole, more than half the population would have to be in jail. It's a function of the growing up that we – and by crime, I mean including shoplifting and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, I was a young man. I did a few things, particularly in the wilderness, that were crazy, destroying an old tree for no real reason, et cetera, et cetera. I won't go into the details of it. But I look back at that and I think, bloody hell, this is what we're doing as a species. We've sort of realized, we're slowly realizing that we've been acting like rampant juvenile gangs on the planet for the last couple of hundred years. Not consciously doing bad, just fucking it up terribly as a result of activities, to excuse the language. Yes, to the extent that we're at risk of destroying the very earth that gives us, the, rather the ecosystem that gives us 
Sakur, as distinct from Gaia, which will survive quite well without us, I think, I hope. Now, we have a, you know, it's interesting in the longer scheme of things, we're going to go in either two ways. Either we're going to grow out of this adolescence fast enough that we can use this new consciousness about our role on the planet as de facto stewards because of this dominant species we've been allowed to become and steer the planet accordingly. And, you know, we need to understand that the real lesson of greenhouse gas warming is that we have a significant role in steering the planet for our own actions. That's what it is. It's not the only role. I mean, sunspots, volcanic activity, there are many other factors still. But while those are other factors that happen occasionally, ours is happening right now. We're actively steering the planet. Either we do that now in a more sustainable fashion, or else we destroy our own nest and consign our species back to a dark ages. It's essentially, and back to another period of juvenile behaviour. So I'm optimistic that we can make this challenge. I don't think it's by any means certain. Many people would say we've probably blown it already, as James Lovelock says. But I'm reasonably optimistic we can make that change, and this is what we're in the middle of doing. Our usage of capital is just one of the many areas where we have to act in that kind of role as stewards of the planet. Our usage of science, our, and of course, fundamentally, our role or our actions with as governments, which is essentially us acting as communities. So that kind of drives me because that knits everything together in a way. I guess the other side of it is that knits me together is, you know, in 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 my past, um, in the work I. I did over the years in social change work, uh, you, I became acutely aware of the, the causes and challenges and injustices of the world. You know, I can remember raising money for UNICEF during the Rwanda crisis and getting the faxes coming in at the latest account of a massacre that we had to then write up into fundraising copywriting. And I'm thinking, how can this be happening in the 1990s? How can we still be doing this to ourselves as a species? let alone, of course, doing it to other species. You know, it's just it's, it's gobsmackingly shaking as to why this is actually happening. In my, in my view, you know, this is this kind of utterly vicious, vicious violence, which is, of course, been endemic to our species for, for all our lives in one way or another. But this is something that, you know, uh, when you go through a process of education, you... Uh, or growing up or conscious raising, you begin to think maybe isn't such a good idea in the long term. And that's led me to think that, you know, we've got to actually work. We've got to work with emerging markets. We've got to work with developed markets too. As we saw in Bosnia, this isn't just a matter of whether you're poor. Rich countries can descend into barbarism too. And it does require a concerted working together as a planet to get over these problems. We can no longer stand by and let other countries collapse for reasons that aren't necessarily the cause of people and usually are not. You know, classic one, Syria, and it's linked to climate change, the collapse of agricultural societies in Syria and movements of vast numbers of people into the cities and so on, and now a totally inadequate response to those challenges, which has led to a war. So that's the other thing that drives me too, this sense that if we don't knit these parts together, if we don't work together as a planet, you know, frankly, we fail as a species at this juncture in history. Last question. Where can people go to learn more about your work? The website is www.climatebonds.net. If you search for Climate Bonds, 
we just pop up all the time. So that's the main thing. But can I leave you with, can I just finish up with two thoughts that I just realized, just Absolutely. to sort of bring those things back down to worse. Um, the, the first thing I want to say is that whilst we, we need to uh, deploy our capital in more productive ways in this particular challenge we face, I don't want to... I don't want to take away that the primary goal, you know, when we're faced with this kind of level of, of challenge, is for us to act together as communities in ways of ours, which means government. And, and that means at a global level as well as national level. So we need governments to act. So we don't believe that just moving investment will save the planet. We need investment to move also in a way that it supports and encourages government to act. And I, and one one example I'll give you, and this has been this is a reason for the labelled green bond market. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier the difference between labelled and unlabeled. You know, if you, if you invest in a solar farm, that's a green investment. If you market it to investors as a green investment, that's a labelled green investment. Doesn't make it any more worthy. It just makes it easier to market. So all the protocols and labelling and certification around the green market are purely means to make it more visible to investors. But I don't want to obviate the need that at the end of the day, it's where the money goes and counts. That's what's really it, whatever, whether it's labelled or unlabeled. So, you know, if you have the time and space, just look for things that make a difference is really the key point. And look for things that also can become models for how governments can act to scale up. In everywhere we look, governments are the ones who have to do the urban planning. That's about 70% or 80% of all our emissions are related to urban development in emerging markets. Things that contribute to that or to encourage governments to make the right decisions. And one of the ways you get them to make the right decision is show them that if they make the right decisions, the money will go to them. And they, it'll be easier for them to raise money for green than brown, if you like. Railways versus roads. So have that at the back of your mind. We, in the next couple of years, are doing a lot more engagement now that we have a platform, which is existing market, with governments, and governments are coming to us. The Nigerian government came to us and said, how can we make this green bond stuff work for us? <clears throat> They've done then our first sovereign green bond after working with them for a year, <clears throat> and now we're looking at green economic development strategies within Nigeria. This is critical in every country, bringing governments to the party, including in European countries, by the way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, one, no one gets off lightly. Here. No comment there. <laughs> Look so, at what's so that's, happening that's, in Germany. That's, that's, one thing I, that's one thing I'd say. Yes. Bear that in mind and never forget that our own civic activism around our governments is also critically important here. Making sure the energy vendor actually gets implemented in Germany. Yes. And let's face it, Germany has stalled, has stalled in the last five or eight years. <clears throat> its emissions have gone flat. This is not Absolutely. good enough yes. for what should be the leading country in the world, yes. and so on and so on. The second thing I'd say is that in that, within that context, there are real opportunities to invest going forward because some of these areas are growing fast. You know, the price of solar is dropping like a stone. There's going to be a lot of ways, a lot of places where markets have to be created, new actors are coming in. So there's actually a lot of opportunities here. So I'm going to just go back to my fundamental thesis many years ago, turning this from a burden, this transition from a burden into an opportunity is not something I say lightly and not something I say speciously. You know, I think we are going to make this transition. I'm not sure whether we'll make it in time. I'm not sure whether we will, you know, achieve the changes the next five to eight years we have to achieve fast enough to deliver the impacts in 50 years. But I think we've got a damn good shot at it, and I think that whatever happens now, 
we can make this change. We will, I'm going to say, make this change. But it does require a lot of active investing, chasing down things. So, you know, when I speak to companies in Latin America, they don't understand that they can get cheaper capital if they engage with investors in Europe. They simply don't have the access to that market. And yet the high, you know, climate change solutions are essentially a high capex versus low capex pathway. You know, solar plants, for example, high capex, low opex. Coal plants, relatively low capex, high opex, and then high externality cost, of course. So the cost of capital becomes vital. Bridging the nature of appetite in emerging markets with the uh, nature of, sorry, need in emerging markets, appetite in, in richer markets is absolutely critical. We can lower the cost of capital in places where they're paying 20%, 25% at the moment down to 18% or 15% and still make a hell of a lot of better return than we're able to make in rich countries. So chase those deals to get this moving faster and faster and ask people to chase them. That's where we are now, I think, at this particular point in history. We have to prove this this year. We have to prove these deals can be made. We need to be making them visible when we do make them and promoting them. And essentially, globally integrating our, our capital markets. You know, the other way to look at it is Europe holds the capital. If uh, emerging markets hold the future. When you look at population demographics, Germany, for example, or, or Italy is the worst, the big question people always say is, oh, there's no way we can pay for our pensions with all of these you know, old people and a shortage of young people. We can have a crisis of capital returns. But you know what? If you look at global demographics at this moment, that isn't the case. The global spread of population is exactly the same as it was 40 years ago when we were setting up pension funds. That is, a lot of young people coming through are going to be out on returns for a fair amount of time. This will change fairly quickly. By 2050, the whole economy will look very different in terms of population demographics. But over the next 20 years, those young people are coming through. If we invest where the young people are, we'll get the returns to pay our pensions, to pay our live, you know, livelihoods when, for those of us who are old and actually own the capital. But we're not going to do it if we stick to national boundaries. We have to look to Nigeria. We have to look to Brazil. We have to look to India. We have to look to Indonesia. And that's why integrating capital, capital markets is not just a climate change, not just a transition issue there. It's also a matter of achieving the kind of returns to maintain the levels of wealth. And by wealth, I don't mean buying a new Mercedes. That's, we, did, we do need to dematerialize our wealth, no doubt about it. I mean the kind of wealth that gives us health care, that gives us stable communities, that gives us opportunities to live a reasonable life, not live a life of suffering and pain. Thank you so much, Sean, for your time. You are a role model for integral impact and a great inspiration to us all. Thank you. If you enjoyed this interview, check out Sean Kidney on social media and his website, climatebonds.net. For further information on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com. Come back soon for more interviews. This is The Investment Turnaround.